Welcome to the Free Range Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Livermore. This episode is sponsored by the program on law, communities, and the environment at the University of Virginia School of Law. With me today is Kim Fields, a professor at UVA's Woodston Institute for African American and African Studies. Her work focuses on inequality, environmental policy, race, and environmental justice. And recently, she's been examining these issues in the U.S. at the state level. Kim, thanks for joining me today. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. So there's been a lot of focus on environmental justice at the federal level recently, or a lot more focus anyway, than there has been in the past. And we may end up talking a bit about that, but your recent research focuses on states and uh, state environmental justice policy, uh, the role that advocacy organizations play in, the, in shaping state policy. What, what drew you to that forum? Why are, why are states an important um, zone for, uh, for, for policy in the environmental justice area? Yeah, this is interesting. I mean, um, so states, um, just in environmental policy in general, have been kind of delegated the role of implementation of some of the larger federal policies. So like the Clean Air Act and um, Clean Water Act, Superfund, those kinds of federal policies. Mm-hmm. Um, the A lot of the um, decisions around how to implement the the mandates um, or rules in those larger pieces of federal legislation um, have fallen to the states. And so this means that they have a lot of latitude and discretion for deciding how they're going to achieve um, those goals and, and meet those requirements or mandates. Um, and so there's a lot of variation and that variation in some instances can can make a lot of sense. Like there might be a need to be more aggressive than like the, the federal floor um, mm-hmm. in some states because of the legacy of the different types of pollution that exist in those areas. Um, and so you might see more robust kinds of efforts um, in states, but in other areas, um, there might not be the need to have that kind of uh, aggressive um, implementation or strategies. Um, but that, so on the one hand, it can be good. Um, mm-hmm. On the other hand, it can be problematic because states have different resources. Um, they have different kind of political contexts um, uh, and environments that mean they are more vulnerable to influence or they by like regulated industries or um, they have a, a small population that could be politically, um, socially or economically marginalized and not mm-hmm. have the kind of influence um, that uh, on, on decision makers that would allow their interests to get reflected in implementation strategies or efforts. And so you, we might see um, less robust or aggressive efforts um, in those areas, even though they might need to be um, more aggressive. So it's really been an interesting um, kind of education for me to see how important um, states are in achieving not just environmental justice, but um environmental quality. So that's kind of what drew me to the state as a unit of analysis. Yeah. And it's, it's, it is fascinating in some ways, just how central states are to environmental law in, in the U S and, and the huge amount of, yeah, just, as you said, discretion and, and authority they have in, in a lot of areas. Um, you mentioned variation and, um, you know, that, that's interesting. That's interesting to a social scientist, right? Uh, that's, that's how you can get started and get some traction on, on studying something. So, you know, what, what, are the, what are the kind of dimensions of variation that you see uh, as important in the environmental justice space, both as like an input, you know, the kind of variation, the characteristics of states that lead to different outcomes? And, and then presumably there's multiple dimensions of outputs that are also uh, you know, kind of worth worth studying and, and worth recognizing. 
Yeah, so some of the inputs that um, are um, important are like the the level of grassroots activism. Um, and I kind of measure that in terms of um, the number of environmental justice kind of focused organizations um, that can be really important and play a significant role in shaping the um, development of states' environmental justice policies, particularly if they are um, permitted to participate in the policymaking process. Um, so that's kind of, that's one input variable that's been um, helpful for me to try to understand some of the variation that I was observing. Um, the the political context can matter too, and some of the history um, of politics in a state in general, um, but particularly around um, environmental protection and natural resource conservation, as well as how it has handled issues around the racial dimensions of inequality in other arenas. So, like, how does it? How has it handled? racial um, inequality in things like education or um, incarceration, that history um, is often useful in understanding the, the strategies and tactics that they use to address the racial dimensions of environmental inequality. Um, so those have been two big, two big ones. Um, additionally, like the, 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 um, the political and economic um, autonomy of the regulatory agencies, the environmental mm-hmm. regulatory agencies that get tasked with developing environmental justice policies. That has been um, a variable that helps explain some variation too. like the more resources that an organization has, the more likely they are to be able to, do things like say hire a, um, staff people who are focused primarily or solely on um, environmental justice related issues or mm-hmm. missions. Um, so those are some of the input variables that have been um, helpful in understanding variation. Um, in terms of outputs, some of the, the variation that I'm interested in are these strategies and tools that states have developed um, to help achieve their environmental justice goals. So do they focus on prioritizing and targeting areas of environmental justice concern or populations of environmental justice concern or do they take a, an approach that um, is more universalistic? Like we want to make sure that all our procedures and processes are open to everyone equally. Um, those mm-hmm. are two really different strategies um, mm-hmm. and they produce different outcomes. Yeah, this is all like so, super, super interesting. And, you know, one, one question that, that springs to mind and is, is based on, um, uh, some some of your earlier writing is um, this idea that environmental justice policies are, as you say in, the, in a paper, a blend between environmental policies and civil rights policies, and that you know, as as you said, the history of a state, political history of a state in dealing with inequality in other contexts, housing, policing, education, whatever. Is is illustrative or illuminating? Uh, one, one question I'm cur- curious about your thoughts on are how much is you know if we think of environmental injustice or environmental justice issues, environmental racism, that um, that kind of cluster of concerns, you know, kind of a manifestation of like these these broader forces about race and inequality more generally versus. Is there something kind of special or unique or different about the, um, you know, about the environmental justice context that sets it apart from from housing or education? Other than obviously it deals with a distinct set of issues, but is there something about it that 
um, kind of conceptually distinguishes the environmental context from other domains where inequality and race intersect? Yeah, so I think about this in a couple of ways. So on the one hand, it's not very distinct in terms of the causes. So like some of the same undergirding um, systems and relationships and distributions of power help explain why we see disparities in exposure to environmental risks. Um, So those same kinds of um, factors that we see in other issues like um, incarceration and education um, are are some of the drivers for um, the racialized um, distinctions in exposure to environmental risks. So Mm -hmm. that's on the one hand. But one of the reasons I um, focused on environmental justice policies was because I did see this kind of distinction that I thought was important um, with the, with the environment that I didn't see as much with um, at least the rhetoric around policy interventions um, with other kinds of inequalities. And that is that there seems to be this acceptance that there isn't a personal responsibility dimension mm. to um, environmental inequality. So um, that kind of opens up some political space, Hmm. um, in my opinion, that is foreclosed in in some of the conversations you observe around how to address uh, disparities in education or disparities in um, incarceration rates. Like there's more space in those kinds of issues to blame the the individuals. Mm. Um, it's not that that doesn't happen in, in in some discussions around environmental racism, but it, it's very different um, in that like they you'll see discourse around this. It's like, well, why don't they move? Right, right, right. But not like they created this, right? Right. Like, you can't really blame the people living there. <laughs> it's for, not their factory, typically. Right. <laughs> um, and I thought that was uh, that was interesting because it, for me, it helped me really point um, out and clarify the kind of um, political policy decision making dimensions um, that it gets. It was a little murkier. Um, and some of the other issue domains, not because the blaming was legitimate, but because it gave this kind of political cover that could be used in ways that made it difficult to build coalition and enough consensus, enough political consensus to get some kind of intervention um, developed and implemented. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. I never actually thought about that dimension of kind of maybe say inequality discourse where, you know, maybe on, you know, one side of the, let's call it like ability to attribute bad outcomes to individuals (laughs) or desire or willingness to do so anyway. And, you know, on one side of the extreme, we might say policing and incarceration actually is, is one um, where people will obviously will blame people that are on the, on the receiving end of those. Um, and there's a whole moral discourse around that and et cetera, et cetera. And then maybe on the other side of the spectrum is, is some a space like environmental justice um, where that same instinct or kind of political uh, yeah, kind of rhetorical device is less available or less attractive for whatever reason. And it's illuminating because I think there's other you know, there are other, um, these other issues that we could place on the spectrum, like education um, is probably less controversial, like um, concern about educational inequality. There was, for whatever we think about its merits, the um, No Child Left Behind bill was highly bipartisan. You know, Ted Kennedy and George W. Bush, you know, agreed on it. Um, Again, putting aside whether it was a good idea or the policies were good, there was some bipartisan notion that 
educational inequalities are bad and that it's not kind of attributable because they're kids, obviously. And so it's less obvious to attribute. People will still blame parents. They'll, they'll, <laughs> they will blame, they'll find someone to blame, but, um, but it's less obvious or less easy than, you know, maybe in other contexts where like, say, inequality in terms of just socioeconomic status or poverty or homelessness or some other kind of economic issue, people say, you know, pe- folks should pull themselves up by their bootstraps or whatever else. So that, that is, um, that is really, um, that is a really interesting dimension. And what do you, do you, do you think that, I mean, has that borne out? You said that was what drew you to the area do you, in, in, in actual practice, as you've studied this issue, is that, is that a distinction that you've continued to feel confident in? It is. I don't see it in the, and you know, I look at a lot of um, meeting minutes and different kinds of transcripts where you have decision makers kind of talking about what they, what they think needs to happen. Um, And I was coding those um, transcripts for things like, you know, what was the causal narrative here? Where, where do, where are people placing responsibility um, and I was not seeing a lot of um, discourse around, um, you know, well, it, it's the people here contributing to it. Um, so it, it does kind of hold up in mm. that way. Yeah. Yeah. That's really that's really interesting. A- another difference that I think is is interesting. I'd be curious your thoughts on is the advocacy context um, on environmental issues you know, versus say housing or education or policing, where you have these big traditional environmental organizations, right? Your Environmental Defense Fund, Sierra Club, Environmental um, NRDC, kind of whatever the the big the big groups, well funded organizations, which who have existed for a long time, and then of course you have the environmental justice movement movement and um, community based organizations kind of starting up. Um, I don't know if an alternative is the right word, but kind of in this in a similar space, whereas in the say housing or um, you know criminal justice or other domains, there just isn't that same dynamic where there's not clearly a, a big traditional advocacy context that then the inequality issues, issues around inequality and race, come up you know, in a sense, um, within that environment, right? Whereas in the in the environmental space, you have the big green groups and then, you know, environmental justice groups kind of raise a critique about the advocacy that's happening by the traditional groups and is, you know, insufficiently sensitive to issues of inequality and race. And, um, you know, kind of the there's a whole conversation about that it happens in the 90s all the way up to today. So, what do you, I'm curious, yeah, your thoughts on that. Like, how does how does that dynamic where you have, you know, this just this different context of advocacy happening around environmental issues versus housing or or, or crime or or other issues, criminal justice? I think once that critique was um, was made and really um, absorbed by mainstream environmental organizations, it became very useful in kind of like the coalition politics um, that, you know, needed to happen in order to get this push further through the political uh, or the policymaking process. So um, on on their own, um, environmental justice community organizations were able to get the topic out there Mm -hmm. and put the issue on the national agenda, which was really, really important um, and compelled, you know, like executive order 12898 and et cetera. But it it takes um, a whole lot to get um, (laughs) past just being on the the agenda um, Mm -hmm. to push something all the way through the federal legislative process, as well as like the state and local level um, legislative process requires a lot of resources, um, uh, you know, being sustaining it over time. And I think that the, the environmental, the mainstream environmental organizations, um, once they got on board, uh, played a role in helping 
the issues stay on the agenda longer and make more um, progress through the legislative um, processes at both the federal and the state level. It's still really, really hard. Um, And, um, you know, at the federal level, I think every year since 92, maybe, I think it's 1992, there's been an Environmental Justice Act proposed. Um, So just to give some context to how difficult it is to to get something actually... um, through that entire process, um, you know, I, I often direct students to that, and I think about that too. Um, but even just to keep it um, on um, Congress people's agenda requires constant um, lobbying, and the environment, the mainstream environmental organizations um, have played a, a role in that. Yeah, that, yeah, that, you know, it's almost as they're kind of like um, the environmental justice organizations who, especially in the early days and still to a very large extent today, you know, are uh, don't have the kind of resources mm-hmm. uh, that we're that we're talking about with the mainstream groups. But if in as much as they can leverage the mainstream groups and hold their feet to the fire um, uh, on issues around inequality and then. Um, and yeah, leverage them into into um, playing a more active role that frees up at least some part of a, a whole world of relationships and resources that can be really useful. Is that another, I guess that leads to kind of a question, which is, you know, in thinking about kind of, I don't know if the su- success is the right word, but the kind of differences between states with respect to their, their environmental justice policies is the existence and strength of a tradi- traditional environmental organizations, an important component. I just think of California, where there's a lot of president, presence of environmental groups. You know, the big environmental groups are there. There's, there's a huge environmental movement. And I feel as though the environmental justice groups have been relatively successful in a state like California compared to other places where there's not as robust of a, of a traditional environmental community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think in... Um, it, in a lot of ways, the presence of a robust environmental advocacy environment within states has been useful for the reasons we just talked about. They can be harnessed to help um, provide resources and other kinds of um, supports for environmental justice organizations and, and groups. Um, So I do think it plays a role. But I think what I've learned is that there's almost kind of like this special sauce that has Hmm. to exist. Right. You can have that robust context or advocacy environment. But if there is a, a really resistant political culture Mm-hmm. Um, or if you're in an economic context where the regulatory, the regulated industries um, are playing an outsized role in something like employment within a state, that even that robust advocacy environment isn't enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it's, it's kind of the stars have to align. There's, there's multiple sufi- uh, necessary causes that kind of have to come into play. Yeah, lots of conditions have to be aligned. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think California is one of those rare places where that exists more often than not, this alignment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and the California example, and so I, long time ago, before I went to law school, (laughs) I worked in uh, in New York State uh, environmental politics for, for several years. And, you know, it's another example where there is a strong environmental justice community and, um, the, in any case, my my perception has always been that they've been pretty successful at um, getting their issues on the agenda and, and winning at least, you know, some of the time, which is often with progressive politics all you can hope for. <laughs> um, that's pretty darn good if you win some of the time. Um, but um, but one other, you raised coalitional politics, and but one issue that struck me with that and I think is very, very interesting in environmental politics these days especially is, we have this deep uh, 
uh, partisan polarization over environmental issues. And one of the uh, features that I always thought was an interesting component of uh, the interaction of environmental justice organizations with the, the mainstream environmental organizations is that, especially these days, but but even you know going going back, there was a way in which these are the coalitional politics within the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. and that you know these are both um, constituencies that are important to the to Democratic politicians. Um, and, uh, at some level, you know, uh, people in the same coalition have to figure out how to get along with each other. They have to care about each other's issues. They, they work together. They're, they're in a coalition together. And, um, you know, a place like California and a place like New York, you know, that are mostly dominated by, by Democrats or even successful Republicans need to be concerned about Democratic constituencies, um, you know, that just creates a particular kind of dynamic. Whereas, you know, I wonder in basically in, in different partisan contexts where you don't, you don't see that happening and, and there's just, doesn't need to be the same level of responsiveness basically just because of, of, of those, the coalitional politics where the groups that we're talking about environmental justice, traditional environmental groups are kind of outside the dominant party coalition. Yeah, this is um, an interesting question. So, are are you asking if um, there's there's more room for um, success if the partisan composition within a state um, is skewed more towards the Democrats because then it's just them coming to a consensus about how to move forward. Yeah, I mean, so that's one one version. So I've got, I think, maybe two questions. So the one is that is, um, you know, just basically how does partisan composition um, affect, you know, these, you know, the environmental justice outcomes that, that that you're studying. Then I guess the second question is maybe more about mechanism or kind of the why of that, or, or what the the consequence of. Um, <laughs> it's maybe not the sharpest question in the world, but basically what I'm thinking about is, you know, you know, environmental justice organizations, civil rights organizations, um, environmental groups, teachers unions, labor unions, you know, more generally, they're all, you know, these are the groups that make up the Democratic Party in some general sense. And I just wonder if the fact that you've you have groups in the same party coalition create space for a kind of compromise and, and um, mentality, like a let's work together mentality, um, when, you know, you might not see that if, if, you know, if we imagine like an alternative world where the mainstream environmental organizations were mostly, you know, part of the Republican constituency, mm-hmm. right? Um, or just orga- or just interests that find themselves in the Republican party coalition that, um, you know, they're just not inclined to hear the concerns about, you know, coming out of environmental justice organizations in part just because they're sitting in this other party coalition and therefore you don't have to work with them. Yeah, that so that that's a good question. Um, what I have found around partisan composition is that there's a a kind of loose relationship between it when I when I'm looking at like the robustness of the policies or like the content, the substance of the policy. Um, but it's not a very good predictor of um, robustness. And it doesn't tell you anything about what types of issues get put into those policies. Hmm. Um, so it is true that in the places that have some of the most aggressive environmental justice policies, they are more, um, they tend to be more democratic, you know, they, they are adopted under um, democratic uh, administrations. Um, but the better predictor is the um concentration of minority populations Hmm. and you know we know that's related to particularly with african americans with partisan identity Mm -hmm. um 
So you can have a democratic, a majority democratic composed state um, that doesn't produce um, a robust environmental justice policy if it's predominantly white. Mm-hmm. So, you know, partisan, that that's more the relationship that I've been seeing. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and, you know, it makes sense because environmental justice has this focus on the racial dimension. And so people who are categorized racially or fall into those categories of um, racial populations that have been historically marginalized um, take up this issue. And, right. and, and so that's kind of driving that part of it. The other part of your um, question about does it create space? Um, I, I don't know that I can answer that. I haven't looked at that in, in a way that makes me feel like I can answer it. <laughs> mm-hmm. But that that is what I can say about the relationship between partisanship and um, policy outputs. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, you know, just and maybe this is a, the kind of multi causality and the multiple conditions that, that you're mentioning earlier, because, you know, I'm thinking of, a, you know, places like Mississippi, mm-hmm. right, where there are I mean, these are states that have substantial populations that are are not white um, I mean, in Mississippi. um I just I just quickly Googled it. Nearly 40 percent of the population is black or African-American. And, you know, that's a substantial percentage of folks. But they're like out of power because of the I mean, for for many, many, many reasons. But, um, you know, the the most obvious kind of surface reason is they're outside of the governing party coalition. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would. Now, this I just don't know the answer to, and, and you'll have more insights on this. I, my naive assumption would be that Mississippi is not a leader when it comes to having good environmental justice policies on the books. That actually might be wrong, but I would I, I would be happy to hear that that was wrong. But um, uh, but assume, if, so 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 maybe I just throw this to you as like, what, what, what are we to make of a state like Mississippi mm-hmm. um, and the interaction of uh, demographic composition and partisan composition um, uh, as ex- kind of explanatory variables. Yeah. Um, so one thing is there is this kind of regional distinction in terms of the uh, the robustness of environmental justice policies. And the Delta South is one of the places where we do see more environmental justice efforts that are more or relatively more robust. Um, and so it um, the partisan kind of composition there hasn't meant that environmental justice policies with some mm-hmm. teeth um, weren't able to develop there. Some of this is just a result of how the environmental justice movement itself emerged. And so, mm-hmm. it, you know, the Warren County... Um, moment in 1982 in North Carolina is kind of what is considered to be like the, the start of the environmental justice movement in some ways in the United States. And um, as a result of that protest moment, there was a um, GAO report mm-hmm. that was commissioned and it looked specifically at the South, the, Del- the Delta South. Mm-hmm. And it focused attention on disparities in that region in particular, way before um, Executive Order 12898. So in some ways, they've been looking at environmental justice for a longer period of time, almost in, in some cases by decade, by a mm-hmm. decade. And so that explains the kind of further along in development of some of these mm. policies in the South, even though they have not been um, part of the parties that have been in power. Mm. Um, so it, it is kind of complex in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think there was a second part to what you asked me, but I got lost yeah. in explaining. Well, but I mean, that's I mean that that is just very interesting. Um, and I guess the the question that just bounces back is is like, what's the what is the political story there? So partially, is it like you have these political leaders? For the most part, they're on top of parties that are just highly, highly dominated, if not exclusively, by the white population of the states. And so that's just kind of the, the their political reality. What is the what is the kind of political case or political situation that leads them to nevertheless, you know, reach out essentially to you know, concern themselves with these environmental justice issues that are, you know, primarily focusing on on folks that are outside their their party coalition. I mean, frankly, I think this is a very positive, potentially at least positive story of, you know, you know, one very optimistic version would be that political leaders are acting on behalf of all of the people of their state, not just the people that are part of their political coalition. I, I, I normally don't think of politicians as operating that way, but, you know, maybe... Maybe I'm maybe I'm overly jaundiced in my in my review of of you know what 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 goes on. Mm-hmm. So some of it is um, again a a reflection of the history of the movement itself. So, so uh, leaders like Robert Bullard and mm-hmm. Beverly Wright have focused um, specifically on um environmental inequality and injustice in the south and so mm-hmm. some of their I, I don't want to call it star power but that's kind of what i think of mm-hmm. uh, that's that's how it comes to me right now um mm-hmm. explain some of this like mm-hmm. um they're very visible um and they have made it a point to locate themselves and the the focus of their work on the south <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, and so even when we look at like the development of scholarship in what we might call environmental justice studies, a lot of it focuses on the South. It's not until mm-hmm. the like really late 90s and early 2000s that we start to see um, research on like case study level research on on states outside of the South. So mm. a lot of this is just like a, um, a testament to the um, sustained um, agitation that um, environmental justice communities in that region and some of the, the key kind of figures and actors played um, keeping like the microscope and the attention on that region um, for and for a lot longer than EJ has been on the radar in some in other states and other parts of the country. Um, yeah. So I think that's a big part of the explanation. Like I, hmm. I do think it deserves some more digging, though, um, the kind of deep, um, rich historical descriptive analysis um I, I think would reveal other dimensions that explain this but that I, I think that is a big part of it yeah yeah and and in a way it, it speaks to alternative pathways to power and social change beyond just the ballot box in some ways mm-hmm. that even if you're not gonna be successful at dislodging the people from power and even if you're outside of the you know, essentially the, the, the constituencies of the dominant political parties, there are still ways that you can, you can persuade and influence and ultimately be successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and I actually feel like we could keep talking about this. It's really interesting because now my, what I want to say is like, how, <laughs> what, what is it? But, but maybe we could move on a little bit. And, and I mean, one, one of the, um, it, I, I, pieces of your work that I think is really interesting is that often when people think of environmental justice um, policy debates, they're focused on individual, like what I'll call it like local fights, right? Like uh, there's an incinerator that's, you know, going to be cited in a particular community. And like, there's an, there's a struggle that we'll often think of as being an environmental justice struggle to stop it. Or there are um, communities that have, there are, these days we, we call them fence line communities uh, is, is a term that's 
that's been introduced in in game currency, right? But these are folks that live, you know, close to often multiple hazards. And then there's, it's very local, right? It's very kind of site specific or community specific. Um, and, and a lot of work has been, has been done, not enough, of course, but, you know, folks have, have thought about those, those local, um, environmental justice fights as I, I, that's how I think of them. Um, your work seems to be oriented towards kind of more overarching policies about environmental justice, not whether some particular facility gets cited or shut down, but how does a state in general um, deal with environmental justice? So um, one, maybe initial question is, is that a fair characterization? <laughs> Two, the second question would be, um, what are some of the the policy levers, like, you know, we talk about variation between the states, like, how do states actually differ at that, at this high level of, you know, how environmental justice is kind of formalized into state decision-making processes? Yeah, the, so to your first question, um, the local kind of, the local fights, I think, show up in the state approaches, Um so one, yeah, that the characterization is true. I'm I'm looking at like how do states in general approach um addressing the racial dimensions of environmental inequality. So yeah, I am interested in that. I but I in doing that kind of that level of um analysis, what I find is that their general approaches are oftentimes reflective of the um the local fights. Maybe they're a conglomeration of them or they reflect a really potent one. Um, mm. So I think about Pennsylvania, for example, that um, it a big part of its environmental justice um, approach is around permitting of um, facilities that produce hazardous waste. And that is a reflection of the um the activism um in chester pennsylvania and and so um those local fights do kind of help explain you know um higher level state level approaches to environmental justice in general um in terms of like the different the variations in the general approaches um I've focused on a couple dimensions that seemed that stood out to me. One was that um, I, I have found that some states will really focus um, almost narrowly on um, eliminating or reducing the racial dimensions of environmental inequality. Um, they embrace this kind of conception of environmental justice as a remedy for mm-hmm. environmental racism and the legacies of environmental racism, what intentional or not. And, and so their approaches are about identifying these areas um, and targeting resources to them that are designed to eliminate or um, reduce the um, the degradation, um, mm. and so that's a, that's one kind of thing that I found that was kind of uh, surprising to me. In contrast to that, I've seen other states take what I call a more race neutral approach, and mm-hmm. instead of focusing on directly eliminating uh, or remediating. Um, environmental degradation in areas of environmental justice concern. They are they focus more broadly on making sure that their procedures and practices um, are equally accessible to people and applied equally across the population. Uh, so those are two kind of distinctions. Yeah, it's. So, so one, one question with that is, um, and this is maybe just like a, a clarification question, is are these uh, approaches uh, actually in opposition to each other in some sense? Like you could, you have to go one route or the other, or is it just kind of as a practical matter, 
what we see is, you know, some states go down one path, some states go down another path, although in theory you could take both. So maybe just to make sure I'm being somewhat clear here is, like, it's impossible to have affirmative action and race-blind admissions simultaneously at, like, a university. It's just, like, literally, they, those are they're, they're opposites from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I'm just, I'm not sure if these are opposites from each other or they're just, like, yeah, like I said, kind of different paths, somewhat different paths that you often see taken. But, mm-hmm. like, in theory, they could, they could be complements or could operate at the same time. Yeah, I don't see them as being in um, incompatible with each other. And in fact, there are some states that have um, uh, a race conscious focus, but also include these more race neutral kind of efforts. Mm-hmm. Um, so, no, they're not incompatible with each other. And yeah, I do see it as these kind of different pathways that... Um, an examination of state um, environmental justice efforts revealed. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, that's that's interesting. Some states are really um, intentional about identifying areas of concern um, by some kind of measure of race, um, mm-hmm. and they they express their priorities and goals as eliminating any disparities that um, come up with that dimension to them. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas other states, you just don't see the language just isn't there. Um, there's no focus on the racial dimension. It's almost not even acknowledged. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of like um, the environment is different in different places and that shouldn't be the case. And so everybody <laughs> should be able to participate in decision-making and have access to information. Um, and, you know, so it really prompted me to think, well, why would they drop the racial dimension? Right. You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's almost as if to work hard to talk around the issue at some level. Yeah, I mean, I guess this is a, is a directly follows on that is, so the, um, you know, what, what can think of this race neutral approaches or making, some of which maybe could be okay, you know, like say like improving your process in some general sense to make sure that it's available to everybody, mm-hmm. maybe, you know, probably admirable or at least potentially admirable. Um, and yeah, as you were saying, it doesn't have to be incompatible with um, ef- targeted efforts to remedy prior injustice. Um, but I guess one question is almost like this, this, the first thing doesn't sound like environmental justice almost. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like something someone might say if they wanted to, it almost just doesn't seem responsive to the to the concerns raised by the environmental justice community, I guess, is, and I'm curious how they, am I just, am I misreading that? Or is it like, I'm curious how it, it just, it's like if someone were to say, you know, there's prior racism and then, and then you, just, you just talk about something else. <laughs> it, it sounds like what they're, what the, it strikes me that that's what's going on to a certain extent. So I'm just wondering if, if I'm being overly unsympathetic or if, um, yeah, like it, it, it is the quote unquote race neutral approach more um, in some sense responsive, but maybe not adequate. Yeah. So this is where kind of the examination of the conversations that led up to the development of states environmental justice policies was really helpful for me. So in um, a couple of my case studies, I saw the particular moments where race as a consideration was um, was dropped out, and mm. they, you know, there were people on these advisory committees that said, um, "We're not going to be able to to get politicians to." Um, do anything if we frame it in this way, like mm-hmm. as a racial issue. So we need to th- to rethink how we're um, uh, defining environmental justice. Mm-hmm. And so you see this redefinition, this kind of re- rewriting of um, what environmental justice means in these committee in committee groups that mm-hmm. often didn't include. Um, members of the of the communities that were mm. impacted, and so 
it's not responsive because they weren't there, mm. you know. And um, again, this kind of goes back to like my thinking about a lot of the policy making process that's used to develop these um, efforts is something we really need to pay attention to because if it's a top down process where like the governor is like, oh, we have to do something about environmental justice. How about you pull together five or six people from the Department of Environmental Protection and you guys come up with a plan for me? Um, there's a lot of other research by people like Jill Harrison and um, I think her name is Joanna Hopper who look at the um, how much people in these um environmental regulatory agencies actually even know about environmental justice like some mm -hmm. of them had never heard of it before others mm -hmm. of them were like outright hostile to the mm -hmm. idea of it and if that's who you've got on this committee and who's responsible for developing the plan then it, it's not surprising that what they would come up with wouldn't look anything like what people in impacted communities would be wanting or asking for or even defining um, environmental justice as so mm -hmm. that's some of uh, you know the explanation now, on the other hand there are you know cases that I looked at where um, the process was was very open from the beginning like we're going to take a pulse of the community and we want to see what issues they um, they want to see addressed what solutions um, would satisfy them, what, you know, what their demands are. Um, and, uh, and that looks the out, the outputs from that process looks, you know, very different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, it's this, that, that makes, that makes perfect sense. And, you know, I mean, one question is you were kind of talking through the, you know, how the conversation kind of morphs where some somebody in some process says, oh, well, we can't frame this in explicitly racial terms. You know, it's just not going to fly with our politicians or whatever. And you might not have a view about this, but I'm curious, just, you know, presumably that person, maybe we could even assume good faith that they were right, that it wasn't going to fly with, with the relevant politicians, you know, because of you know, we, we could imagine there would be politicians like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, what do we think of that move? Is it Does that just mean that the state's not ready to really move forward with environmental justice? Is it better to just wait and continue the conversation in the terms that maybe it should be continued in? Or, you know, is it is it a is it a plausible and maybe temporarily OK compromise to um, move away from, you know, an explicitly kind of racially oriented and remedy oriented approach. Uh, that just strikes me as a, uh, a hard question, I, I, but maybe one that isn't context. So it's, I think there's a kind of two ways to think about this. This could either be like, maybe this is the kind of compromise that could be made sometimes under certain circumstances, or the view could be, no, that's like literally doing something else and it's not addressing the thing that we're worried about. And so it's, it's not a compromise that would ever make sense to make. Yeah. I think that, um, under certain conditions, if you've got another type of alternative that directly address, um, the, the concerns and you think that is viable to get it through, that process, then maybe it makes sense. Um, <laughs> I, uh, in general, um, and this is tricky for me because as a researcher, like it's uh, sometimes I struggle with put stepping outside of it. Mm -hmm. And um, my own kind of thinking about politics is you have to worry, you have to think about or be concerned about the effects that it has on constituent groups mm -hmm. um would that be demobilizing right mm -hmm. if people have been active around environmental justice and ask for very specific things and what they get is something that doesn't look anything like what they've mm -hmm. asked for what kind of interpretive message is that going to send and mm -hmm. what will that do in terms of their participation? Mm -hmm. um, the research around this is in other contexts is, is kind of mixed. So sometimes it demobilizes, it sends them messages about their worth and it, you know, kind of 
decreases their feelings of political efficacy. And, and other times it makes people really mad mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, can, and can mobilize. So I think it's a tough call um, to make. I think you have to be really clear. And this is in part a problem with where they decide to delegate this issue for development. Regulatory agencies aren't always super concerned about the political um, life of, mm-hmm. uh, of an issue. And, and that can be problematic with, with something like environmental justice as an issue. Um, so... I kind of lost my train of thought with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think that, I mean, it was a, I agree. It just seems like you mentioned that there's like a range of issues that, you know, uh, that are just practical political leaders face. Diff- uh, like one of the hardest choices is when, to, you know, when making a compromise and everything's always going to be a compromise, what kinds of compromises are going to be demobilizing versus what kinds of compromises are going to be mobilizing? Because you have to win sometimes <laughs> also, right? If you just lose and lose and lose and lose forever, people will, they will lose interest as well. So it is a, uh, yeah, it's a, a super, super tricky and very practical, pragmatic kind of judgment. Um, one thought that you maybe just to continue on the last thing that you were saying is, you know, it matters which kinds of institutions mm-hmm. that we put these decisions in when we're kind of constructing these policies. It strikes me that, you know, part of, you know, the, the effect here might just be about like kind of risk aversion and, and, and kind of the, how different people view the risk of what you might call like at least temporary failure, right? So a state employee who's been charged by a political leader with, you know, can build me a policy that I can live with. And, um, you know, we, I want to address this environmental justice issue, but then like everyone knows that I don't want to see something that has an explicit <laughs> and, you know, remedy, you know, race kind of component to it. Like, so that sounds like an impossible task. Mm-hmm. But um, but the the state you know official might be very risk averse to then delivering something to the you know to the to the higher up that the higher up doesn't want to see. Whereas if it's in a you know say a more open process, and maybe we could just talk about what a more open process looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the folks from the environmental justice community might just be willing to to take a temporary loss and say, look, this process just failed. Like it didn't come up with something useful. We would rather kind of just continue the fight than sign off on, you know, a quote unquote environmental justice policy that doesn't actually address our issues. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I kind of, um, remembered where I was going with the last part of that. And I think this kind of helps, um, or feeds into the, to the discussion you were just having or the question you were just at proposing, um, so on the one hand, there is some value in kind of forcing people, um, particularly elected officials, to take a position on something, um, even if it's not going, even if you know they're not going to uh, produce exactly what you want, right? Mm-hmm. It's, if you have this long game, this kind of long political game, you might want to expose them, right? Mm-hmm. If, if this constituent base is important to them, and you've gone through this process, you were explicit about your ask, and what developed was something that doesn't look anything like what you asked for or what you need, it, that can be really valuable information for people to use when making kind of their decisions about who to support. Um, so there's kind of that dimension to it. Um, mm-hmm. And then... Um, the other part about institutions, like where these things live institutionally, um, the the resources of um, different institutions, even if they're the same type of institution, like a, mm. a regulatory agency across in different states, if one has um, you know kind of tasked environmental justice to uh, staff members on top of their other duties, um, you know, you, you you might get environmental justice efforts that are, are the easiest for them to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's just like the kind of, 
in some ways, this is the classic problem of, of policymaking, right? So if you're just under-resourced people producing not altogether satisfying, satisfying results. Um, so, so maybe I might, might take, just take a final question for you. And, and this takes maybe a, this a little bit out, outside of your research area, but I'm just I'm curious what your thoughts are, or your, not your research area, but you know, the specific research that you've done. You know, I kind of think of states as, um, you know, like many people, they're, they're like, they're not laboratories, but they're, as you say, there's lots of variation. And they're a place where different types of politics can get tried out um, in addition to different policies. And, you know, I, I really, you know, personally think these days, and I think a lot of people are just extremely frustrated with the, the extreme partisan polarization that we see on environmental issues. And, you know, which is just really a, a, a big roadblock to, to, you know, additional progress and meaningful uh, improvement on issues like climate change. And I'm wondering if you just have any thoughts just broadly on how environmental justice maps onto the partisan uh, polarization dynamic. Is there, in particular, what I'd be really <laughs> uh, hoping that you might have some insight on is whether there have been places where environmental justice issues have been a way around the partisan, or they have helped to alleviate some of the, ne- the, the partisanship that we see, or there's some way of um, uh, environmental justice uh, concerns or groups or institutions have um, short-circuited some of the mechanisms that um, have led us to this really bad place on polarization at the national level? Um, so what comes to mind again would be um, something I observed in Pennsylvania where mm-hmm. environmental justice activism kind of started um, um, around what was going on in Chester, Pennsylvania, with these mm-hmm. incinerators, um, and you know the the activists in Chester were saying we're targeted because we're black, we're targeted because we're low income, and we're bearing a burden of um, the not just the state but the region's trash, um, and that and and that's unjust, and so. They, you know, they sued the state of Pennsylvania, the Department of Environmental Protection, and um, had kind of a partial victory um, there. But what came out of it was the the governor um, put together the the council, an advisory council, and included those members, um, those activists on that council. Mm-hmm. Um, they created these really robust recommendations that were focused on eliminating and reducing the racial dimension of environmental inequality, particularly around permitting and the siting of um, hazardous waste producing facilities. But um, they decided to kind of reach out more broadly. They they understood that this was kind of a moment that they mm-hmm. could take advantage of and do more to kind of protect the environment in general. Mm. And at that time, fracking was starting to Mm -hmm. become a really big thing in different, uh, a totally different part of the state, like Mm -hmm. the um, central and northwest part of Pennsylvania, um, where Chester is kind of near Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they had these conversations about how do we, um, incorporate both of our concerns mm-hmm. in in the in our recommendations so that we develop or at least help shape the development of whatever the state is going to do to address environmental justice. And so there was a lot of debate about whether they should just focus on race, if mm-hmm. EJ should be defined just solely in terms of race or whether or not it should be expanded to include income. And that would bring in the people living in the areas where fracking was starting to take root. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they combined their um, kind of demographics to come up with a way of identifying areas of environmental justice concern as having a percentage like I, th- I think at the time it was 30% minority and or 20% mm-hmm. low income. And so 
Um, they were very different in terms of their political identities. Um, and so out in the Northwest and central part of Pennsylvania, mostly Republican, um, very conservative. And in the, the um, Eastern part along the seaboard, predominantly Democratic, but they came together to kind of um, help develop an intervention that would protect both um, of the, the groups that were participating in this process. Um, so for me, that was an instance where an environmental justice um, as the issue um, helped transcend what we might normally see as being um, con contention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, well, that's a great, um, very concrete and very hopeful, uh, hopeful case. So I'm, I'm glad that, 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 we, that we talked about it. Well, this has been a really, really interesting conversation. Um, I learned a lot. Um, so thanks so much, Kim, for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for the invitation.